Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. From Connecticut Public Radio in New Haven, this is Seasoned. I'm Chef Plum. And I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. It's all hands on deck this week at Connecticut Public Radio with each of the local shows producing nautical-themed episodes. It's Naughty Week, N-A-U-T-I. And honestly, Connecticut seafood is one of the best things about living in New England. So we're glad to go hard on our love of fish this hour. I mean, we do all love fish here, right? I wouldn't say all. How bored are you with eating if you're ordering the fish? You know, just bring me something gross. I like to waste money. (laughs) Who's the first person to walk into a harbor and go, hey, whatever reeks in here, let's eat that. (laughs) What's the best compliment you can give fish? Is to say that it's not fishy. Isn't fish supposed to be fishy? Get the hamburger, it's not burgery. Fishy is an indication something's wrong. Something fishy going on here? No, everything's burgery. That was the comic Jim Gaffigan, of course. Okay, so maybe not everybody loves fish. (laughs) We do know our listeners love a local chef they can cheer for, though. And we were finally able to hook Chef Renee Tuponce for a conversation. She's known for her innovative work with seafood. And later in the show, I talk with Valentine Thomas, the author of the adventure cookbook Good Catch. She's also a spear fisherwoman. She'll talk about what it's like hunting underwater and share some tips for cooking fish. Plus, we'll get local clam shack recommendations from the author of the book, The Great Clam Cake and Fritter Guide. But first, Chef Renee Tuponce. She is the executive chef at Oyster Club and the Port of Call, a nautical-themed cocktail lounge and restaurant in Mystic. She was the Connecticut Restaurant Association's Best Chef in 2022. And this past June, Renee was a James Beard Award finalist in the Best Chef Northeast category. I sat down with Renee at the Port of Call to talk about her success and her connection to seafood. It's fun to be sitting in here right now where it's like there's so much wood, like the wood on the walls and almost like the little windows that are actually mirrors up by the bar. And it feels like we're on a boat. Yeah, that is that is a theme. That's what we wanted people to feel like when they walked in here. Um, most of the wood here at Porta Call is refurbished from the Charles Morgan sailing ship. Wow. So um, we redid the finish, and that's what the bar top is made out of, and the floor underneath us. So we definitely wanted the the nautical theme of when you when you're up here in the Porta Call space, you feel like you're on a ship and then when you go downstairs to the dive it's like you're in and you're in the bow you're underneath and you feel like you're in the bottom of of the ship and that's where things get crazy in the dive bar i gotta imagine because i know the (laughs) the chef community here in mystic is is pretty great some great chefs out here i mean you guys all just kind of hang out in the dive and don't tell anybody you're down there yeah for sure you know we uh it's part of the kitchen culture after work. Everybody wants to have a shift drink and, yeah. and unwind from the day. So most of our servers and cooks, you know, will go down there and we'll play vinyl records. And, you know, if there's ever a show or a band playing, you know, we have karaoke, you know, every other weekend we like to have dance with a DJ, DJ Marshall. And we, we like to let our hair down every once in a while. I want to work it's, here. <laughs> yeah. That sounds fun. <laughs> yeah. It's a good time. We like to have fun. So you've been cooking now for 20 years. I have. But the last few years especially have been a whirlwind of just accolades for you. And you're such a humble, nice human being. I don't think you'll ever say it, but we're all very proud of you. We're proud to have you in the state. It's incredible what you've accomplished and what you've done. Have you had the chance to think about that? Just a moment to yourself to think about that success? Honestly, I feel like everything has been happening so fast, especially like the last couple of months, June was a lot you know we we went to Chicago and then as soon as we came back two weeks later you know I was lucky enough to have a residency at the James Beard platform space so as soon as we came back from Chicago we got ready to go and do that and you know I'm really looking forward to like getting grounded in in our spaces again and and having a moment of reflection because I kind of just been like full throttle 
but there are moments of clarity when I'm around my people and, you know, you look up and you take everything in and you're like, holy cow, how did I get here? You know, and uh, sorry, I get a little emotional about it because I'm, I'm super proud of the be. work that I've done and, and they're doing. And um, I'm very, very lucky. So not to keep harping on the emotional part. <laughs> Talk about that moment when you found out about being a James Beard Award finalist. Talk about that. Like, how does that happen? What goes through your brain when you hear that? It was crazy. Um, the first, you know, so the the semi-finals, the first time I found out, my partner Jade and I, we, we decided to travel to Mexico. Mm -hmm. um, and on our way back, we wanted to stop in Florida of all states to see um, her grandmother. And as we were there, I had no expectation of any of this. Like I had no idea that this, yeah. you know, was going to happen. And, you know, you can, as a chef, you only hope that you get that recognition, but it's literally like putting lightning in a bottle, you know, like as uh, many talented chefs in the world, like, holy cow, me, you know? Yeah. So in that moment, I was at her grandmother's house having coffee and we were watching Telemundo, like the Spanish uh -huh. channel with her grandma and just like, you know, enjoying that, that moment. And I got a text message and it was the James Beard image of, you know. Like the insignia? Yeah, uh -huh. that came up on my phone and Jade was next to me and I, I immediately was like, no way. I don't know if I can swear, but I was like, no <laughs> way this is happening and I'm like she got to my name and she was like she screamed that I was a James Beard nominee and I just fell into her arms and started wow. crying and I was like so emotional and I couldn't believe it and I immediately called my my sous chefs and they were like the first people that I wanted to tell and then because I was in Florida like man right. I'm not in my home I'm not in my kitchen right. like I can't just run in, into my spaces and be like guys we did it like it's happening so I was like calling them freaking out and everybody became super emotional and then you know I flew back home and when I got off that plane and stepped foot into the restaurants everybody it was just like that's awesome you know in that moment I got to just like look around like I said and, and take it all in and I'm like how is this happening? This is crazy. You know? Well, congratulations to you because that's an incredible story. And like I said, just hearing that, <laughs> it makes me like well up and just get emotional because that respect of your peers is just, there's nothing better than that. I'm so lucky. I'm so fortunate. I cannot say wholeheartedly how much love and respect and gratitude and thanks that I have for my teams. You know, I've worked very hard to get here, but I've also worked very, very hard on the relationships and the teams that I have and without them, I'm nothing, you right. know, it's, it, it is a very much like we do this together and I'm so thankful. Before all this experiences and all these things that led to this moment in your career, you were a kid growing up in Torrington um, <laughs> and I understand you were influenced by having lots of Italian and Puerto Rican food in your house. What were family meals like? Awesome. You know, we weren't the wealthiest of people. We were a big family. So I have three stepsisters and my brother, my grandmother lived with us and then my mom and my stepdad and then we have friends, you know, so my mom was so awesome where the door was always open to whoever came. She's an Italian mom who is, is wanting to feed everybody and anyone who walks through the door and I think I get a lot of that aspect from her is just like how I was raised, what she instilled in me and it just comes naturally. That's how we share our love. So for food, it was like, okay, how can I make a lot of food for everybody in a way that doesn't cost a lot of money? Because, you know, she worked in a factory and so did my stepdad. So, you know, we, we didn't grow up on a farm and yeah. all that jazz and that's okay. So she made it work for a big family. So that means there was lots of spaghetti and meatballs and lasagna and things that you can make a lot of that was affordable. And then my stepfather, having been Puerto Rican, you know, we would make a big pot of rice and beans mm -hmm. and, you know, make slow roasted pork and, you know, make empanadas and make things that were cheap, affordable and delicious and that you can make a lot of. Right. So it was a blast. And it's crazy how your youth comes full circle because I think I like to make comfort food that comes from nostalgia and it's not just one type of cuisine. For me, I just pull in influences from my youth and also from 
my 20 years of cooking experience, mm -hmm. you know, from the cooks that I cooked beside me, you know, there's so many things that I try to learn and take in through my journey that now is what I cook and create, but with my own rendition and, and my own creation and mindset on it. So now, like, I'm trying to cook with love and from these memories of my youth and, and here I am serving bacalaitos and empanadas and all these things that I made at home with my parents, but using local ingredients and making them from scratch. It's just really cool to have done that and now do it this way. So you've kind of become well-known in the state for your work with seafood. Fish charcuterie, for example. I mean, there aren't a lot of chefs doing that sort of stuff. You use all parts of the fish and you're passionate about local sugar kelp. Tell me about this connection that you have with seafood. Over at Oyster Club, you know, the focus there is seafood focus. So, you know, that relationship comes with your fishermen, our lobstermen. You know, we have our raw bar and, you know, most of our seafood is sourced through Seawell. Her name, I've been working with Aileen. Daily, there will be a boat go out and then she'll send me a list like, okay, this is the fish that we've gotten today. And she'll right. shoot me a text and let me know, okay, we have monk, we have fluke, we have, you know, striper, we have tile, like whatever lands that day. I trust what they, they do there. They do great work and, you know, they wholeheartedly believe in sustainability and positive practices there. So from there, we get to curate our menus off of that. On top of that, we have our raw bar. So we have a variety of different oysters and, you know, just to touch on one person's story out of the many oyster farmers that we work with, his name is Will Cedia and he owns Sixpenny Oyster. Mm -hmm. He started out as a shucker. He has studied aquaculture and is extremely passionate. It's knowing the stories behind where your food comes from too, you know, like I'll go out him and, and some of my cooks, you know, whoever wants to, he'll take us out to his oyster farm and we'll harvest oysters with him that morning. And then they'll be on the raw bar within like four hours. Like Amazing. how cool and how fresh is that? And it's coming from someone that I respect and know how passionate they are. And same is true for, you know, Susie from Stonington Kelp. She takes me out on the boat whenever I just need to like get some zen or let's go out on the water and let's let's harvest some kelp and you know it's just those relationships that you build with your farmers and knowing where the product is coming from understanding the work and their passion right it, it makes you have respect for knowing where your ingredient comes from all the work that they've put into it I want to do that justice by sharing their product with the world and then making sure that I use every aspect of it. So I have a deep passion for butchering whole animals and whole fish. It's just something that I, I spent a lot of time butchering and, and breaking down whole animals and having that same love for animals that I do for fish, like thinking creatively, okay, how can I use the head, like I would use the head on a pig and make head cheese, right. but use make fish head cheese. Or how can I make a pork and beef sausage from the scraps and trimming with fish scrap? Or how can I turn the end half of a tuna tail into prosciutto? You know, like letting my mind work in that way as it would for a whole animal. And when that moment happened, everything just changed, right? You know, when you start to think about fish differently in that way, that's when you open the door to other aspects to your food, you know. And then through experimenting, even with like taking a belly and curing it and mm -hmm. then smoking it and treating it as bacon, as you would for pork belly, you do that with tuna belly, yeah. right? It's just really cool. It's just through experimenting and testing, you know, how much salt, how much sugar, how long can this cure for before it becomes too salty? Like we practice and practice and practice. And now we have set recipes that we've been working on this for four or five years that now I know this amount of salt or this amount of cure or different techniques or styles. You like, got it figured out. You got it figured out, you know, that comes through being big nerds, like I said, you know, so it's just 
respecting the whole animal, the whole fish, the whole vegetable, and really, really utilizing as much as you can, because that's part of being a good chef too, is like turning waste into gold, right? Right. It's funny because uh, you know when you go to someone, when you go to somebody's house, you bring a bottle of champagne, you bring something. When when we got here, I, I brought chef a uh, tuna belly because yeah. I had some. I was like, here, I got you this. It's very thank random. you for that. The wheels are already but, turning. Yeah, right. <laughs> but the things you can do with it, you're right, which is so fun. It sounds like that almost that butchery, that making charcuterie, that figuring out what you can do with it, kind of is a zen moment for you too. Yeah, I love it. I love it so much. What's some of your favorite stuff to cook here in the state that you think we get here that maybe other places don't have that as nearly as good as we have. Definitely our seafood is insane. You know, oysters are like, I love our oysters so much. They're so fresh. They're so delicious. I can't get enough of them. There's also the land that we're surrounded by. So, you know, we are fortunate to have all four seasons where we can do foraging, you know, like there's ramps, there's mushrooms, there's, you know, like, we're spoiled and I don't take any of it for granted. I love it. Is there a fish that when you talk to your, you're using text message, okay, this is what they've got today. And they say, hey, we've got this. You're like, awesome. I'm so excited to have that. I, I, I'm obsessed with tuna. I love yeah. tuna so much. I definitely love blackfish, you know, or Delicious. or when Dory comes in, John Dory, that's like for a limited amount of time uh-huh. or anytime we get tile fish in. You know, we always work with fluke and monk because that's our, you know, most sustainable fish to this area. That's pretty much year round. Um, I really love working with squid. People I, don't say that very often. That's I, interesting. Yeah, I love squid. If you ever have the opportunity to go squid fishing, it's really cool. Thinking about squid in a way that's like different textures rather than just like, you know, fried calamari or whatever yeah. is delicious. But there are different aspects like grilling it mm-hmm. or even like... I've done a ceviche with it or, you know, even a squid salad where you can cut it and you can poach it, you can quickly saute it, you can fry it, you can julienne it, you can play with the shapes and textures and, you know, it's awesome. The difference in squid (laughs) from like what people think about those frozen boxes of squid versus when you get it locally from somebody the texture is totally different. It's totally different. Yeah. It's, it's so much, I don't know, less chewy. It's interesting. I, I think it's delicious. It's amazing. Crabbing right now, you know, blue crabbing around yeah. here is definitely a thing. I've had the opportunity of doing that where you go out on a late at night and either you just have a net. Some people set up a net and you have a bucket and you go late at night when the tides are low and you literally just like scoop blue crabs out the water and then throw them in a bucket and then you go back and throw some old bay on them and you steam them and and you just eat them fresh right out the pot that's kind of that's what we're stepping into right now here as locals is like blue crab in season is is coming up it's like celebrating it almost when you can do that with friends and a big pot of crab right yeah i love it is there a fish you wish more people, even not so much restaurant people, even just home cooks paid more attention to it because it's sustainable, it's delicious, maybe a little underappreciated? Definitely monkfish. I cook. But they're so ugly. That's the thing, right? <laughs> really Everybody like I've secretly have seen some of our <laughs> guests. Sometimes people that don't know what monkfish is at the restaurant, they'll like Google it, right? They'll be like, <laughs> and I've, I've had one of witness or overheard one of my servers be like, you know, even though it, it's not the prettiest fish, yeah. it's absolutely delicious. Amazing and it's delicious. true. It's so diverse. It's sweet and it's delicate. Some people say it's like the poor man's lobster, yeah. but the different things that you can do with it is is phenomenal. Like Holds you, up on a grill, like it doesn't it, fall apart. Right. Like it's very forgiving. You can pan sear it mm-hmm. and, you know, slice it and just serve it that way. We've also take the cut and you butterfly it and you pound it and then we bread it and kind of do like a katsu or a cutlet style. Ooh, okay. Um, you can also poach it. I've also taken it where we butterflied it out, right? And you do like kind of like a double butterfly, if that makes any sense. Like you butterfly and then you butterfly again, okay. right? So like if you were going to make a roulade, like a porchetta uh-huh. kind of version, I've made pancetta with it. So you can cure and rub it with all your spices that way, then roll it and then trust the outside and hang it and let it cure and yeah. make a monkfish pancetta if you want to get really crazy with wow. it. Um, we've also done 
monkfish pastrami where you get it whole, right? When you get a monkfish whole, it's really cool and really creepy to the outside world, but you skin it like you do a rabbit. So you hold it from its tail and you I mean, grab Chef, it. I just want to point out, I love how you say that like everybody who's listening is skinned a rabbit. Like, oh, <laughs> that makes sense. Now I see what she's talking about. <laughs> that is true. I'm trying to think what else I can make reference well, to. Well, you, you kind of hang it, hold it up, or you can grab it, You're, just pull down. Right, and you just pull down right. and you just rip the skin. <laughs> And it comes all the way from the top to the tail, right? Head to tail. Probably sounds crazy, but I love doing that. <laughs> it's something that's like so fun if you're into it. If you're not, I get it. I mean, there's a whole slew of questions I have for you now <laughs> just about mental health, but I don't know if I should go there. <laughs> you know, chefs, are, we are a little wild. <laughs> if you think about the cuts and the diversity different, like it could be as simple and delicious as pan searing a fish, which is absolutely amazing and that's really really great and if you're feeling adventurous and curious you know you can push it as far as you want there are no limits and it's just a very diverse fish that i i love working with chef your <laughs> passion is infectious just so you know that and we're so lucky to have a chance to hang out with you today and talk about it i know you've got work to do i don't want to keep any longer so we appreciate your time thanks so much for hanging out with us here thank you so much for having me it's been a pleasure see it was easy it was easy. It was great. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you. That was Renee Tupance, executive chef of Oyster Club and the Port of Call and Mystic. Her food is so beloved that at least one patron has one of her signature dishes tattooed on his arm. How cool is that? I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. <laughs> That's commitment. And I'm Chef Plum. Coming up after the break, the author of the book, Good Catch, shares tips for cooking seafood and talks about what motivates her to free dive 170 feet underwater with a spear to catch dinner. I was like, wow, I'm not this tiny, skinny little girl from Montreal who's scared of her own shadow anymore. I'm like, I'm a hunter. I'm a hunter and gatherer. This is Seasoned. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Welcome back to Seasoned, everyone. I'm Chef Plum. And I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. Our next guest is Valentine Thomas, a spear fisherwoman and an ocean conservationist. She's the author of Good Catch, a guide to sustainable fish and seafood with recipes from the world's oceans. Valentine was born and raised in Montreal, Canada, and her work has led her to fishing destinations like Louisiana, Florida, California, New York, Mexico, France, and the Bahamas. I spoke with Valentine while she was between flights at a Florida airport. When you spend much of your time free diving 170 feet below the surface of the world's oceans, you have to spend quite a bit of time 35,000 feet in the air. I started by asking Valentine how she discovered spearfishing and came to love it. It was very oddly when I lived in London. I made friends with a group of people who were very into it. I did not want to do it at all at first, and then I fell in love with the food sourcing process of it. What exactly does spearfishing entail? Do you use special spears for different fish? Is there like an ideal place to pierce the fish's body? Like, how does it work? So basically, I think the most important thing is that we hold our breath. So we're not using a tank. So we do everything while freediving. 
So what you do is you basically at the surface of the water, you breathe up to make yourself super calm. You take a dive, you hold your breath while doing so, and then you have different types of spears, yes, depending on what type of fish you are catching. Of course, if you're catching a tuna, you're going to have a much bigger gun and much more powerful gun than if you're hunting for snapper, by example. And I do call it underwater hunting because you are, again, holding your breath, waiting, either and 200 feet of water, you're just floating in the middle of nowhere, or you're at the bottom of the ocean, you're kind of waiting to see and the fish to approach. And of mm. course, we want to try to aim for something that will end the fish life as soon as possible. And if you do a bad shot, which can happen, you grab the fish as soon as possible and you make sure that it doesn't get anything. Since there are different spears for different fish and situations, what's your collection of spears like? How, how many do you have? I have about 17. Wow. <laughs> I have a problem. <laughs> <laughs> do you have like a favorite? Do you have a spear that's like, oh, this is my good luck spear and I'm going to catch something really great with it? Well, I actually, I like it the smaller, the better. I really do like in the Bahamas, by example, you're not allowed to use an actual spear gun. You have to use something way more primitive. It kind of looks like a slingshot. So I, I do like to use the smallest and the most primitive gear that I can find. It's a bigger challenge, I guess. And I guess you're feeling a little bit more connected with your surrounding by doing so, in my opinion. Your book is so beautiful. It's part travelogue and part cookbook, and it truly evokes a sense of place. And that place is the ocean. So what do you wish more people understood about the world underwater? That there's different things. I think that there is a lot of information circulating about how the oceans are dying and, and, and all of that type of stuff. There are a lot of issues, most definitely. But I think that we need to really see the ocean as also a very resilient place. There are a lot of good things going, and I think we just really need to focus on that and focus on making things right more than anything. The ocean, it can be sort of, you know, mysterious to people like me. And because of that mystery, all of us land dwellers, we may not appreciate it the way that you do. Can you just describe for me, what's it like down there? I guess the best way to illustrate that would be to talk to you about my first time. I was on the boat. It was just, he was kind of black at the top. It was raining. It seemed so daunting to me. And I could not imagine that what would be under that. And it felt so scary. And then the moment I actually jumped into the water and look under, it just opened such beauty and calmness that I've just, I've never experienced before. Mm. And even though from the outside, the ocean can seem big and scary and very like it's not a really good, comfortable place. It is one of the best places ever. And this is coming from somebody who almost drowned when I was 14. And I was petrified of the ocean for many, many, many years. What changed for you? What was the thing that brought you into the ocean to conquer that fear? Food. Uh, ah, <laughs> my yeah. first time fishing, I was so nervous and I was borderline having a panic attack and I was not comfortable. But it, I fell in love with being humble by the fact that I was in the ocean catching my own food and then coming back on the beach on that first day with the first fish I ever caught. This is when I realized that the ocean is so much more than we thought it was. And I was like, wow, I'm not this tiny, skinny little girl from Montreal who's scared of her own shadow anymore. I'm like, I'm a hunter. I'm a hunter and gatherer. It's a connection that was, it's, it's so hard to describe it because it changed my life completely. You went from being afraid to being someone who says, I'm a hunter. And there's like a, there's a power in that. <laughs> I love it. Early on in your book, you have a section called The Case for Eating Fish. And I find that people either love fish or they absolutely hate it. It's a blanket category. They don't eat any fish at all. Barring allergies or true aversions to seafood, why should we eat fish? There is so many good reasons. First of all, it's a very clean protein. And uh, yes, there are a lot of issues with the ocean. Still, there is about 78% of the seafood consumed around the world that is from sustainable sources. Mm -hmm. So it's not as bad as we think it is. Also, there's this fascinating study that I read a couple of weeks ago that was saying that they made a study between a pregnant woman who ate seafood and he did not eat seafood. And they found that the one who ate seafood, there was an increase in IQ in their kids by 7.7 .7 points, which Amazing. is insanely high. <laughs> yeah. Seafood is the ultimate brain food. And even though when you think about mercury or if you're thinking about microplastic, the health benefits you get from seafood by far outweighs the extremely minimal, practically inexistent 
risk coming with all of that stuff. Yeah, and and a lower environmental and carbon footprint. You know, there's no fertilizers down there. There's other things in terms of comparing it to the way we grow food on land. Um, no insecticides. And you say in the book, the oceans grow our food for us. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so you did mention mercury. And I wanted to ask because as a person who eats a lot of seafood, people probably is the first thing they say to you is like, well, what about the mercury? And so how do you square the concerns about mercury? So mercury normally occurs in, in much bigger species. So that would be something like swordfish or marlin or some really big tunas. So the, the risk will come if you don't do things in moderation. By example, if you go to eat sushi every single day and you eat tuna every single day, you may occur a problem. If you vary by eating, let's say like once a week salmon and then a the week after something different, you, you, you will never have an issue. Yeah. And I learned from reading your book that the FDA sets a maximum safe limit of one. They do this in parts per million and like one parts per million is the safe limit. And most seafood, swordfish maybe comes close to one parts per million, but most seafood, the ones that are like really commonly eaten, like shrimp and scallops and oysters and anchovies, salmon, crabs, and tuna, those things are, especially compared to swordfish, relatively low in those parts per million. So you have to eat so much of it to have any sort of impact from the mercury. Am I correct about that? Exactly. And, and and even then, it's you would get mercury poisoning, let's say, if you eat uh, something that's swordfish that has very high concentration, mm -hmm. but you would still need to eat swordfish, let's say, four or five times a week for a few months. <laughs> yeah, and that's a lot of swordfish. It's a lot of swordfish. <laughs> yeah. Comparatively speaking, the United States is a leader when it comes to ocean sustainability. But if we want our children and our children's children to have access to the same fish that we eat today, we just have to do some research about where our fish is coming from, right? So for local folks shopping at a grocery store, what is the gold standard? What should we be looking for? I would say the number one would be, again, as the U.S. is a leader in sustainable seafood, I would suggest to find fish that is from the U.S. So it is either wild or farm. I think there's the, I think aquaculture got a very bad rep. Sometimes deserve, sometimes not deserve. Uh, aquaculture will be part of our future. And there are some really good farms out there. But when it comes to either farm fish or wild fish, it is important to do your research and making sure that ask questions at a fish counter. Be like, I want something that's sustainable. Can you point me in a good direction? And the person will be able to help you. Yeah. And also you're creating demand, right? So you are showing as a customer that sustainability is something that's important for you. And then they do take that feedback in. And now they can say, oh, you know what? There's a lot of demand for sustainable seafood. So maybe we should increase the one we're selling. So again, as a consumer, you are very powerful in what you're buying. I think it's more important to focus on what we should buy instead of what we should not buy. Mm -hmm. You mentioned aquaculture being something that is a big part of our future. For people who aren't familiar, can you define that or describe that? What, it, what does that look like? One of the newest technology now is that you have this type of, um, of like a recycling water thing. So there's a lot of inland aquaculture uh, when it comes to seafood. There's a lot of technology going in a really, really right direction when it comes to aquaculture. It does represent over 50% of the seafood that is consumed. That includes pet food and fish oils and all that stuff. So aquaculture is here to stay. And yeah, it's getting in a right direction. And mm -hmm. you should not shy away from fish because it says that it's farmed. Because there are some really, really good farms out there. I realize this is a big question, but can you help us understand in layman's terms how climate change is wreaking havoc in the oceans. The ocean is, it's so vast, it's so underexplored that it's very, very hard to have a clear assessment of, of what's happening. There are some corals dying. It's because of a lot of different things. The ocean is one of the best places for us to feed ourselves. And one thing that I can say is not about climate change, but more about pollution. Once a plastic reaches the ocean, it will be practically impossible to be taken out. So the massive thing that you can do is really eliminate the use of new plastic. I imagine on your, your dives, it's something that you have to contend with all the time is seeing like, on the one hand, you're surrounded by so much beauty. And on the other hand, you are probably witnessing firsthand a lot of these plastics floating around and it's got to be disheartening. I saw a fridge in the middle of nowhere next to a deserted island in the Bahamas. Oh, <laughs> gosh, that's a heartbreaker. <gasps> Oh, 
To shift to cooking for a moment, it's grilling season here in the Northeast where I am, and I have to cook fish on the grill because no one in my family will let me cook fish inside. They they think it stinks, but what do they know? Uh, you have lots of tips for cooks who want to grill seafood, and I wondered if you could share some. So a very, very easy way to cook seafood is you can buy even just an Amazon, a grilling mat. So that's something that's very easy. So if the fish falls apart, then you're going to make sure you're not going to lose any pieces to the grate. Another very easy way is I use a cast iron pan directly in the barbecue. Yes, I read that. And that's great for campers to know. Pack that cast iron skillet. It's so easy. And then also another way is to cook the fish whole with the skin on. And please, please, please do not be intimidated with cooking a fish whole. It's so easy. You buy it at a grocery store. It's already clean for you. All you have to do is stuff it inside with some fresh herbs, some lemon, and then just grill it in the barbecue until the fork, you can go all the way to the bone and the, the flesh is falling apart. It's very, very easy to make a fish whole taste amazing. Yeah. And if you want to make it even easier, wrap it in foil, put it in a barbecue. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, done and done. And people <laughs> don't understand that cooking a whole fish, I think of it as almost like the equivalent of cooking a whole bird where like you put it out then people are impressed by it. It looks beautiful. I'm more intimidating by cooking a whole chicken and making sure it's juicy like cooking a whole fish. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's harder to cook a chicken. <laughs> Excellent point. In your book, you cover the basic cooking methods that fish-loving cooks are familiar with, tips for frying and searing and poaching and roasting and even confit if we want to be fancy. But the one that surprised me the most, Valentine, is it really okay to microwave fish? <laughs> I've tried it. It, w- it would not be my first choice, uh, okay. but it actually didn't taste bad. I did it, I think, I can't remember, it was a weekday, and I was super in a rush. I was like, you know what, I'm going to try this. Put it in the microwave, put in a little bit of white wine, or even coconut milk, put it in the microwave for a few minutes, and it was cooked all the way through so quickly. No dishes, nothing. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so good to know. Like, in a pinch, it's okay, and it wouldn't be your first method of cooking, and then, like, also just that we only just came back to work, so just that old rule applies. Don't cook fish in the microwave at work, right? Probably, yeah. <laughs> Your coworkers may not like you for that. <laughs> the recipe section in Good Catch is broken up by the places in the world where you've had some memorable spearfishing expeditions. So I wanted to ask you about your New York chapter and specifically about oysters. So I should just mention that Connecticut has a robust oyster scene here, and it's some of the best oysters in the world, Valentine. I promise if you come, you need to have our oysters Talk to me about these beneficial and delicious creatures. Oysters are probably the best seafood you can eat in terms of pretty much everything. First of all, you don't need to feed them. And not only you don't need to feed them, they are also working for us. The one that in the ocean, they are filtering gallons and gallons and gallons a day. They're filtering the water, making it cleaner for us. It is the perfect seafood. And they taste amazing, obviously. <laughs> yeah, they're like great for the oceans and they taste delicious too, yeah could tell the same about mussels too if you're looking for a quick nice sustainable seafood dinner even on an easy wednesday night pick up a bag of mussels put it in a pan put with nice white wine some juice anything cook it and it's ready in five minutes fantastic product also same thing as oysters beautiful for the ocean too anytime you're making fish cooking it in some wine or you mentioned coconut milk before i just i love that so much it's with fish butter wine Cooking the milk, you always, you always going to be fine. <laughs> mm-hmm. One of the recipes that stood out to me was your fish puttanesca, and it's really pretty, and it has a family backstory to it. You want to share it? Yeah. So basically, um, my dad uh, worked from home, and my mom worked a lot. So my dad was in charge of doing the weekly meal uh, for my sister and I. And uh, very luckily, he used to make that. He used to throw up the tomato can with some fish and some lemon, throw it in the oven. It was just an easy week meal for us. And I just remember being one of my favorites growing up. So when I did the book, I just really wanted to take my twist on it, but really kind of make a tribute to my dad on that one. <laughs> I love it. And it's so, it's simple too. I mean, there are recipes in the book that look gorgeous and fancy and like, oh, you could tell that you are someone who is an advanced cook. But it's good to know too that there are a lot of really simple recipes in this book that people can cook on the weeknights too. And they make a really great meal. One of my main missions with that book was to make seafood accessible. So a lot of the recipes are easy to make with not a lot of ingredients. 
a lot of people feel pretty intimidated when it comes to cooking seafood. I want to create a fish Bible that everybody would have access to all the information that I knew about it. And that way they can have the tools to cook it easily at home. I really appreciate your work and how deeply you care about the ocean and its food. Thank you. Of course. Thank you so, so much for having me again. My pleasure. And do please come to Connecticut and try our oysters. Oh, yes, please. <laughs> you will not have to tell me twice. That was Spear Fisherwoman Valentine Thomas. She's the author of Good Catch, a guide to sustainable fish and seafood with recipes from the world's oceans. Want to take a stab at a few recipes from the book? We've got Valentine's Fish Putinesca, Oysters Three Ways, and a seafood-studded corn chowder that would be absolutely perfect right now. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. And I'm Chef Plum. You can make that chowder with any flaky white fish, so go to the market and see what looks good. Find links to the recipes on our show page or go to ctpublic.org recipes. We're going to take a short break, but when we come back, clam shacks. You're listening to Seasoned on Connecticut Public Radio. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Chef Plum. And I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. Connecticut's famous for its seafood shacks. And while lobster is the big draw there, clams have a cult following too. Our next guest is Carolyn Wyman. She's the author of books about spam, chocolate chip cookies, Philly cheesesteaks, and jello. Her latest book is The Great Clam Cake and Fritter Guide Why We Love Them, How to Make Them, and Where to Find Them from Maine to Virginia. Carolyn, welcome to Seasoned. Thanks for joining us for a few minutes. Glad to be here. Let's start with a line from the book's subtitle. Why do people love clam cakes and fritters so much? Well, they're fried. Fried foods taste great. And in some cases, the best shacks, they're using lard, which is the best kind of fried food, right? That's true. They're clams in an accessible form instead of like steamed or fried with the bellies. You know, a lot of people have issues with that, too strongly flavored or whatever. You know, clam cakes sometimes hardly have any clam at all in them, and they're sort of like training wheels for <laughs> for fish in a way, or certainly for clams. And they're cheap, usually the cheapest thing on, on a seafood shacks menu. Probably the most important thing, actually, is it's a summer food. It's usually of a certain time and place, vacations, amusement parks, outside, with your family, served in a big communal plate or, or basket. It's the vacation experience plus the camaraderie with your family and friends. In a way, it's almost like barbecue or, or that kind of outdoor food. I think it's just festive and delicious, too. I can't agree more. I feel like in summertime, when I'm finally having a clam cake or a fritter, it's definitely summertime. What could be better? Clam cake and fritter styles differ depending on where you are in New England. Can you describe some of the signature hallmarks of these cultish summer staples by region? Like, how is Rhode Island different than Connecticut, different than Massachusetts? There's three main kinds of clam cakes and fritters. There's the main style, the Virginia kind of Southern style, which are like pancakes. The main style is almost like crab cakes, like a fried patty. The Southern New England style, I mean, it is basically a fried dough ball. You know, like I think of it as a savory donut hole. That's kind of what it is with the clam flavor. But, you know, Rhode Island is the epicenter. And the further you get from Rhode Island, the more variations you see in terms of, well, one big thing is even what it's called in Massachusetts and Connecticut, traditionally called a fritter. In Rhode Island, especially old old Rhode Islanders like myself, that is a heresy. <laughs> if someone comes into Rhode Island to buy a clam cake and calls it a fritter, you know immediately they are not a Rhode Islander. But history research for my book, it's actually not heresy because some of the very best traditional places like Aunt Carrie's and, and Crescent Park did call them fritters historically. So there's precedent for it. So you needn't feel too bad if you're a Connecticut or Massachusetts person. Um, you have some credibility calling them fritters. But the further away you get from Rhode Island, I think what you find is more spices. People are like, this is a little boring, you know, it's but I don't think it's boring as a native New Englander, native Rhode Islander, that it's kind of a classic New England food, but it's pure and done well. 
incredibly good. But when you get to Connecticut, a lot of times they'll put onion, they'll put various hot sauces or hot, you know, spice it up basically. And also how they serve them. You know, again, being this snobbish Rhode Islander, you know, I, I went to one stand in Massachusetts and they, they put as a big plate of clam cakes appropriately enough, but then they stuck a, a fork in it in one of them. Like what slice? You know, it's like, it's done. Stick a fork in it. You would never see that around. You you eat it with bare hands. Come on. This is this is uh, primitive. Food. I love this. It's like telling a Connecticut person to eat a piece of pizza with a fork. What are you talking about? We don't do that. What's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? Right. Exactly. You need that little grease on your fingers. It's good for you, right? Right. <laughs> so now we know that clams were part of the diet of indigenous peoples here. And I read in your book that they used the prettiest clamshells to make wampum beads for ceremonial wear and used to be used as currency. But New England colonists were slow to understand the value of clams as food. When did the tide change and the first clam base and clam shack start popping up in New England? Yeah, a lot of people think you think New Englanders clams, right? That sure. we love clams. But that traditionally was not the case. I mean, the pilgrims were like, we want meat. We want meat like we had in England. The first started to see the value of clams really as bait for cod. And they didn't like cod either, but they were able to sell the cod. So it was it was useful in that way. Like a hundred years after the the pilgrims landed, you know, there were celebrations about how the the white people came here and how well they did. And it was kind of this, you know, creative reimagining of how well it went uh, at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And so they they said, well, yeah, the, the, the pilgrims and the Indians, they ate the clams and the shellfish together. And they would have these in 1720, they would have these feasts of the shells. So they would have these dinners and it was like, yeah, this is let's celebrate the pilgrims being here and, and adapting so well to their homeland, which was probably not true. But so that's when the Wanglers started eating clams. So you visited a number of clam shacks in Connecticut that serve clam cakes and fritters. What were some of the standouts to you? There's a place called Johnny Ads, which is in Old Saybrook. A lot of people know them for their lobster rolls, but they also have excellent clam cakes. And man, I was there one night and, you know, the, the teenage kids are peeling potatoes for the chowder. And that's the kind of thing, you know, no, no Cisco trucks coming up there. That's great. With, with these best places, that's so, so impressive. These little operations and they're making an incredible amount of food from scratch. What are some other shacks that stood out to you in Connecticut? A couple of ones that are kind of surprising. Some of my favorite, a couple of my favorite ones are actually not even on, on the coast. Uh, it's a place called Hanks. It's in Plainfield. Oh, yeah. And um, they're making an incredible amount of stuff from scratch, including the clam cakes. It's like their second best fried food seller after French fries. And these, I mean, it is not far from Rhode Island, but it's not on the coast, you know. And so that's really surprising to me. Well, it's not surprising if you try them because they're really good. The, the fry is almost like a, a really good fried chicken, you know. That stand they have a mission statement. Wow. It's incredible. Like, this is a little, like, dairy bar. <laughs> but they really care about their employees, and, and they do free concerts. They have kind of a, almost like a park on the side. So, yeah. There's the, the Lobster Shack in East Haven. And this is like a sprawling, you know, group of buildings on the water. And it's a full-scale restaurant. And it's kind of puzzling if you don't know the history. Well, it's, and also the name. Why is it called a lobster shack? It's like multiple levels and everything. But it started out as a, basically a, a truck, a little truck in Brantford selling just lobster rolls. The owner, Nick Crismali, his fritters are interesting. He He's one of those that likes a, a little bit of spice in it. And he serves it with a, with a spicy, like Chipotle type tartar and uh, garlic Creole seasoning. But it's excellent. It's an excellent fry, and it's a really great place to go. Just a fun place on the water. Sounds great. I can also talk about Deary Brothers, which is another one not on the water. It's up in Putnam, you know, in the middle. Again, not anywhere you would think about to go to a clam shack. Mm -mm. They have a light and wonderful fry on their clam cakes. You know, worth going if you want a good clam cake in Connecticut. How about Sea Swirl and Mystic? Can you tell us about that one? Yeah. Well, Sea Swirl, again, is another one that is famous for having good seafood because they, again, they do a lot of their own stuff. It's run by, um, guy's actually a plumber. He does a, a great fry and it's, it's that old fifties Google style building. 
And he has a little place right on the little river you can sit. How about an all-time favorite spot for clams you'd recommend to anyone traveling around New England who happens to just love a great seafood shack? And it doesn't have to be in Connecticut. Aunt Carrie's in Rhode Island. I mean, probably the closest thing to go into one of those shore resorts from the 1800s, the mid-1800s. It's a simple building that's it's the same building as it opened in 1924. Same family runs it. And clam cakes that have all the crunchy profusions, which is an art in and of itself. And they just do so many things well. I'm also a sweets person, as you know, from the chocolate chip cookie book. <laughs> they got incredible desserts there. Cream pies and real uh, strawberry shortcake. And another, you know, again, more than 100-year-old business, Woodman's in Essex, Massachusetts. They're famous supposedly for inventing the fried clam that... Maybe they popularized it, but, you know, that was like 1916. That was more than half a century. Clam fritters and cakes had been around and uh, they still make them. And theirs is almost like eating a clam cake with a fried clam stuck on the outside. Wow. The profusions, the little things. It's like two great foods in one. And, And again, the cheapest thing on the menu. I mean, what a bargain. It tastes so good. If you buy fried clams there you're going to be putting out some serious shell. I think it's two fifty for three or something, you know, for clam cakes. I see what you did there. Some serious shell. Nice <laughs> done. Carol, you've got me wanting some clam cakes, some clam fritters, some French fries. Can't wait to make a trip down to the shoreline or some of these great places you talked about. Thanks so much for hanging out with us. We really, really appreciate you taking the time. We hope you have a great rest of your summer, and you never know, I might bump into your shack down the road somewhere. That'd be great. <laughs> Thanks, Carolyn. Thank you. That was Carolyn Wyman, author of The Great Clam Cake and Fritter Guide. Carolyn will be at Aunt Carrie's in Narragansett, Rhode Island on Thursday, August 3rd, signing books at a free concert with Quahog Joe, a professional quahogger and musician who sings songs about clams. You heard one of them at the beginning of this segment. We'll link to Carolyn's website on our site, ctpublic.org seasoned. And go to our site to get recipes from Valentine Thomas's book, Good Catch. Dive into all of the nautical-themed stories airing this week on Connecticut Public's original talk shows by visiting ctpublic.org slash naughtyweek. And remember, it's N-A-U-T-I. I'm Robin Doyon-Aiken. Seasoned is produced by me and Katie Tolerski, Meg Dalton, Catrice Claudio, Stephanie Stender, Tegan Engel, Meg Fitzgerald, Sabrina Herrera. I'm Chef Plum, and our summer interns are Stacey Addo and Carol Chen. To keep up with the latest on season, follow at CT Public on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. And we're at WNPR on Twitter. Or follow the hashtag SeasonedCT on all platforms. Catch this and past episodes of Seasoned wherever you get your podcasts. And subscribe so you never miss an episode. We'd love it if you rate us on Apple Podcasts, too. It'll help other food lovers find us. Thanks for listening, everybody.